0: We were talking about the a couple of days ago. Uh, me, me and Zim wrote to each other uh, because I don't remember how it started. Maybe we, we were talking about this episode and how it would run out, and then uh, we this this topic came up of mental health in general and how it's treated in the U.S. And I was my first question to to him to try to understand what happens in the U.S. is how come you guys use so much drugs. <laughs> uh, and so so quickly and so early stage, like we're normally here in Italy, probably, I don't think, unless you're like a psychiatrist, so not even a psychologist, you're not even allowed to prescribe drugs for, uh, you know, the most common mental health issues, such as depression or, thing, or anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, while my gut feeling, and I think Azim uh, confirmed it the other day, is that that gets... Very easily uh, given in the U.S. at very early stages, even without a proper diagnosis. I don't know if this is uh, true. What do you What do you think?
1: I think we turn to drugs in the U.S. because we view the human mind and body in mechanistic terms, uh, strong causality, cause and effect. Um, you know, you can take this pill and have it do this particular thing to the brain. But what we don't appreciate is that we're we're not machines. We're complex systems and we we Mm. don't exhibit strong causality. Now, there are exceptions, obviously. Somebody in pain, significant pain, should be given pain medication. Um, But in terms of cognitive function, cognition and consciousness is a emergent property of humans, and I don't think we can treat emergent properties with strong causal means. Does this mean that you should
0: have a sort of a moralistic approach? when curing your patient and i think that goes beyond mental health that goes you know even when you go a specific type of of pain sometimes but do you think that what you're going towards and what you're saying is that there has to be some sort of more holistic approach to to curing mental health
1: i think so definitely i think a holistic approach should be a part of any treatment um a a surgeon should not be holistic you know a surgeon should do surgery but when they're out of surgery What are some of the activities and rehabilitation exercises planned? Because I bet there's a way to integrate holistic kinds of modalities that would improve the outcomes overall.
0: Yeah, and by holistic, of course, we mean uh, not necessarily very, very complicated things, but sometimes it's even simply diet or physiotherapy. And maybe a little of uh, mental therapy too, in terms of you know getting out of uh, an injury or motivation and things like that. So, yeah, I think uh, I totally see that, and I think that's in in current medicine. This is something I'm missing a lot, especially in Western medicine. I don't find that often. Uh, maybe um, osteopaths do sometimes have that kind of a holistic approach, where they would have uh, uh, ask for an opinion even from a dentist or. Uh, gastroenterologists in some cases, and they they want to, to build a big picture and try to understand what's going on with your body. While if you go to the specialist, uh, because of the sheer definition of the specialist itself, he, he's not going to look outside his bubble for the for the issue, and he's gonna he's gonna be sort of uh, sort of biased, right? In the in the in the research he's gonna do and and uh, in the investigation. And also, I would also add so so many doctors are not curious enough to actually try to understand what's happening with yeah. you they have stats, they have uh, they know that 99% of cases someone has that has these symptoms is going to have this specific thing and so the um, diagnosis is going to be more, in most cases based
2: on stat- statistics rather than uh, proper holistic analysis of what you have. Man, as as someone who's an American though, one thing I have to interject with is that I think as much as we can blame doctors because there's a a strange incentive system to to prescribing medication that's there one thing i have definitely seen is that the patients in the united states are very like looking for the silver bullet type of people yes and so when they go in they're expecting a this is my problem give me a medicine whereas if you told them like hey you know what might be beneficial to you would be to start practicing some different breath work and meditation every day so that you could potentially mm-hmm. help soothe your, you know, your central nervous system, it would say, no, 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 <laughs> I, that's fine, that's cool, but where's my medicine?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, true. I was, uh, when I was back in the UK, uh, this thing would happen a lot in uh, the NHS system. Uh, so in the UK, you have public health system in the same way we, you have it in, uh, in Italy too. Um, you had walk-in doctors, uh, in the, compared to Italy, where in Italy you've got a doctor assigned who's going to be for a l- large por- portions of your life always the same, so he knows what you are, what you have done, what you've taken, mm-hmm. he knows all over your history, um, especially in small towns, that's even more probable, but even in, city, in big cities it's like that. So you have a doctor in, in an area that's got assigned uh, a certain number of uh, patients. Um, and with the NHS, what would happen is uh, I've been a lot of times in the, in, in, in the doctors for different reasons. And I've been, say, probably in out of four years walking in there like 10 times and never meeting the same doctor uh, because of the way the system works, which I think it's not necessarily an issue. But then the thing would be... Uh, when i was explaining what i would have uh they would have this clock running and knowing that they would have five minutes per patient to build a diagnosis so their uh, diagnosis would be based on uh, on statistics mainly because it's the quickest way to to actually build a, build a diagnosis and then g- give a therapy uh, immediately after because they have these objectives it's very very well it's almost like a, a a chain, a factory chain in, in, in this sense, which is, uh, you know, in, uh, probably it means that in 99% of cases it will be very accurate and productive. So um, I haven't got anything against that, uh, but I agree with Zim. Sometimes it is us going there thinking that we already know what mm-hmm. we need and uh, we've done our Google research and we, we think we have a tumor, which <laughs> even with a, with a headache is the case. No.
1: car can run out of gas and you could even leave it in an abandoned field for like 10 years and assuming it doesn't get rusted out you can start that car up again when you put more fuel in the same cannot be said Mm -hmm. for an organism it's vital to our to our grand conversation on mental health that activity is everywhere all of the time and really to understand this we have to get rid of the idea that there is a stable sort of being everything is everything is change change is the only constant when it comes to not only our environment but our internal environment the the cognitive kinds of activities the electrical activities that make up our consciousness it's all going on all the time and if it were to stop we would die
0: this reminds me of the uh, you can your feet into mm-hmm. the same river twice.
1: That's exactly where this Mecalfour. is coming from. That that was Heraclitus uh, back in ancient Greece. I want to say 1400 mm-hmm. something or probably older than that. I'm way rough. <laughs> but yeah, it was Heraclitus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that appeal to bodies of water in particular. Uh, it's called the stream of life conception. And it's one thing that the philosopher John Dupre and Daniel J. Nicholson talk about in their book, The... Um, a processual philosophy of biology. And that's where I'm, I, I mean, I, I love the textbook. I'm a big fan. I hope to meet him in person one day, but that conception helps to make sense of diachronic form. How how a river can expel all of its water, all the, all the water particles that are in a river now, tomorrow will be gone, yet the river remains. So what is it that has stayed constant here? And what has stayed constant is the activity. It is the change of water. Just like that constant activity within an organism or the constant activity within a business. Uh, a challenge that we're seeing right now with the uh, shutdowns of you know, worldwide economies because of COVID. How slow, how close to thermodynamic equilibrium can we bring restaurants and the hospitality industry and you know yada 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 without causing them some kind mm-hmm. of structural failure? How can we manage these systems without the system collapsing?
0: Okay, so change becomes a vital part of the system, if not an endemic characteristic or feature of the system for it to survive, if we're talking about complex
1: systems. Absolutely. Change is completely necessary.
0: and, uh, and it's chaotic, it's, it's emergent it's uh, not necessarily mm-hmm. something linear
1: Yeah. The, the emergence and the restructuring is an interesting kind of avenue into the mental health question um, so mm. I think that an effective solution to mental health would there we go I think that understanding the structure and function of the human nervous system is necessary if we want to understand mental health. I think that complex adaptive systems theory offers the best analysis tool when we talk about structure and function of a system. And ultimately, when it comes to designing a treatment that employs this kind of an understanding, I think that's going to be the trick to greater efficacy in mental health. Because right now, the average mental health outcomes across the industry are effective about 40% of the time. and. Windows. If we sold you windows that were effective forty percent of the time, I think you would run us out of town.
0: <laughs> you're talking about uh, therapies that include uh, drugs, or uh, you're talking, about, uh, I'm talking, talking
1: about? I'm talking about. I'm talking about psychotherapies. But I mean, in, in theory, if there were a therapy with a drug that could initiate, and this is to a, a degree what psychedelics do. Um, there's an amazing book. Uh, called mm. The the Science of Connection, I believe from uh, Psychedelic to Soul something like that, uh, by Dr. Judy Holland from New York. She's a psychopharmacologist um, and she talks about a deactivating of the, oh god I'm gonna Dr. Judy What's her name again? Julie Holland I just know it by Dr. Holland but it's essentially a deactivating of one nervous system, a calming down of one nervous system, and an activation and excitement of another nervous system. I believe it's the uh, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. So it's slowing down the sympathetic okay. nervous system, which is what I don't want to say that's where we start to feel anxiety. Uh, but when we pick up signals from our environment, they get processed through the sub and unconscious. Where we filter through series of beliefs, beliefs I I take it to be like the operating system on a uh, you know on a computer. Again, I resist mechanistic metaphors, but they are convenient. Um, the mm-hmm. the sub and unconscious essentially try to say, how do I feel about this thing in my environment? And if you look into polyvagal nerve theory, um, it talks about this in much greater detail. Um, how do I feel about this? The stimulus in my environment and what sort of physiological reaction within me am I going to create? And I, I use the I, but, you know, I'm talking from the subconscious and the nervous system perspective. And the peripheral nervous system is looking for those sorts of threats and responding to them appropriately. The parasympathetic nervous system is what allows us to help build connections with others. To to connect in a spiritual social, loving sort of sense and I think any sort of back to the the question of does that therapy include drugs if there was a pill if there was a drug that could achieve that same sort of effect safely I would be all for it and I think That is what psychedelic research is about, at least as far as Dr. Holland is concerned. I I don't remember if she's using ecstasy, um, MDMA, or if she's using uh, psilocybin. I want to say psilocybin to treat PTSD and depression. And really what it's doing is it's allowing a restructuring of the subunits within the system. And just to make a business analogy, if... If there's an economic sort of crash, like there was in March of 2020, that is a signal, that is a stimulus from the external environment into the internal. One of the great things about complex systems is they possess non-intentional agency by differentiating interior from exterior. And we see that even in non-biological cells. Like, you can set up a saline gradient, and, and the... The action, the activity through the membrane will move towards an equilibrium and it's a differentiation of self from other. The economy and the nervous system do this in a similar sort of way. They can receive a shock from the external environment, reorganize their internal units, their subunits to be more optimal given the selection pressure. So if it's a temperature base, you know, if there's a wildfire, that's one selection pressure. Um, if there's a blizzard, that's another selection pressure. In the case of humans, we are social primates. Once we got past the stage in our evolution where we were genuinely concerned about you know lions, tigers, bears, that sort of stuff, um, our biggest threat, our biggest mm-hmm. selection pressure, became sociability. The less you were part of a tribe, the more likely you were for that tribe to disown you, you know, take away your resources or uh, or worse.
2: Honestly, so what I'm curious about is distilling this down for the everyday layman who doesn't necessarily have a lot of this knowledge is I'm curious, like other than, let's say, taking like a psilocybin uh, and not wanting to take, you know, an SSRI, what are some functional things that people could look into that would help them with some of these issues they face like an anxiety or just like an overly activated part of their nervous system
1: mm-hmm. uh, in,
2: in a simple way that they could get into. Because from my, my personal experience, for instance, like breath work and breathing are a big one. Trying to take a look at and understanding your sleep patterns is a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, understanding uh, are you exercising or moving enough is a big one.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but for someone like yourself who is an expert on this, I'd be curious, you know, like for any, yeah, for any average person, like where should they start looking? If they're like, man, I don't love the fact that I take drugs or I'm avoiding going to a psychiatrist because I don't want to just be given drugs. Where could they begin?
1: Great question. Um, I think breath work is a great place to start. Um, and we employ that in our practice here. Um, first I want to ask you the question, would you agree with the premise that an effective solution to treating an ailment of a complex system would be to encourage some sort of restructuring of the system's internal subunits?
2: Without a doubt. With- and it would, it, without a doubt, what I'd say is, it would, it would also require not necessarily just treating the symptoms that I'm experiencing, but trying to understand what it is that has sort of gone awry in the complex system to cause the symptoms.
1: Okay, right on. So what I, the place that I work at, we provide integrative neurofeedback. Um, And if you've never experienced neurofeedback, what that does is we measure your brainwaves using QEEG. We process them through a computer algorithm and then we feed them back to you in the form of sound. And brainwaves are kind of like keys on a piano. There's low tones and there's high tones. And each of them communicate a different sort of internal communication to your system. They are your system communicating with itself about essential functions. So, you know, uh, who's going to do the heartbeat this time? You know, is the food digesting? You know, uh, keeping things running smoothly. Um, When an individual hears their nervous system via this brainwave, via neurofeedback. It sounds kind of like nonsense. It sounds like boop, 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 boop. But to the sub and unconscious parts of our brain, to the parts integral to our functioning, and more importantly, to the parts that trigger and operate our fierce fear response, fight, flight, freeze, panic, um, as well as just kind of our general emotional response, our sensory motor neuron response, To those parts of the brain, the boop, 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 boop makes perfect sense. It takes about two to three seconds for that part to recognize the pattern as itself. So we're giving the system an opportunity to interact with itself in a way that can restructure those subunits organically. Now, what we're doing in addition is we're doing the cognitive psychological work alongside that to support, because there is no there is no fear response. Those nerves don't fire unless there is a belief on some level that it is appropriate for those nerves to fire. And this goes back to metabolism. The brain is incredibly chintzy when it comes to metabolic energy. It doesn't want to waste a drop. If it believes, or really if it fires in a way that is discordant with your belief, that is a waste of energy. So In addition to changing the brain function and giving the system the opportunity to reorganize, we're working with you on the psychological beliefs about your sense of self, your worthiness, your identity. Um, We're getting to a place where you can identify a little bit more with why your system is reacting this way. And it's almost like talking to a younger version, uh, a slightly less mature version of yourself, because this part evolved in that social primate pack animal kinds of kinds of structure. Um, And that is what the structures of those parts of the brain are optimized for. Now, getting those to change, changing the belief systems along with them and giving the brain an opportunity to restructure itself are great um, one thing that we're doing in addition that helps improve the efficacy is something we call neurofeed um, Basically, we're taking your brainwaves and calculating what they would look like if they were 10% calmer. And we're showing that to you. Your pattern, 10% calmer. Your pattern, 10% calmer. Back and forth until your brain, which again wants to save on energy, tries out that pattern. And it recognizes that it can do the same activity with less energy overall. And it's trying to adopt that pattern in the long run. The please.
0: So let me try quickly to, uh, recap what you said so far to see if I've got it right. So, um, the first phase is sort of an analysis that gets done on my electroencephalogram and brainwaves and. uh, and a mm-hmm. psychological evaluation of myself to understand what status I'm in and what status my brain waves are in. So, the emotions on one side and the uh, mm-hmm. physiological reaction of my body on the other. Then you're feeding me back uh, those same brain Correct. waves in, uh, in sound. And you're trying to hack my brain by making me also hear. Uh, those same brain waves in a calmer state, hoping that my brain tries to mimic, just by hearing it, mm-hmm. uh, tries to mimic that kind of state. And and simultaneously, you're also providing with the traditional psychological evaluation and uh, support process. Uh, yes, health treatment. Um, so, statistically, what happens, do you know that compared to traditional, you know, just uh, mental health treatments, uh, psychological treatments, this is increasing the um, the uh, healing process, yes. mental healing so,
1: process? Ultimately, what this is helping to do is accelerate neuroplasticity and... Neuroplasticity is how your nervous system rearranges those subunits. It's a naturally occurring process. It happens 24-7, just like metabolism. And it's building new connections in the brain to house and to strengthen motor neuron response. um, And really, information. So you, you you put your hand on a hot stove, and it's obviously painful. So your hand jerks away faster than your brain can even think about it your brain would love to do that with almost all of your life all of your responses all of your reactions um to to a degree rob you of your agency um and to help you stay alive longer than maybe you would if you had free will um okay because the concept of
0: um, uh Efficient movement or muscle memory, how we normally call it in sports, is basically based on the same principle, which is you repeat that movement thousands of times to the point that you're, the connections between your brain way your your uh, brain cells is mm-hmm. becomes thicker and thicker and thicker, so that uh, there's less dispersion of signal and that uh, electric signal moves more quickly and more efficiently mm-hmm. between one brain cell to the other, therefore uh, the instinctive uh, movement is now completely embedded in your DNA. You're saying you're doing the same thing by uh, rewiring basically the, or in- enhancing the neuroplasticity and the capacity of our brain cells to actually build new connections therefore favor that change which we discussed before is so vital for the evolution of a complex system, and in our case the survival of our and, and, and uh, amelioration of Absolutely. our mental health.
1: Um, and I think leaning into change is really part okay. of the solution here. And it gets back to why why Americans are so reliant on medications for mental health is is that's not leaning into change. The nervous system relies on change, complex adaptive systems rely on constant movement of resources and exchange of materials to survive, yet they themselves fear change. Because change is, it makes metabolic efficiency challenging. These structures, these organisms, they already know what works Mm -hmm. for them, for their species, whatever.
0: yeah, so those connections are solid, they're thick. But now, all of a sudden, I teach a new movement, and of course, the body doesn't want to learn it because it's, it's, it's triggering brain waves, uh, brain cells that didn't trigger mm-hmm. before. And the, so the thickening of that mi- at the beginning.
1: Yes, and the thickening of that myelin she thing you were talking about, um, with muscle memory in sports, that doesn't just happen with physical movement. That happens with emotional movement as well, with conscious movement. And anybody who seriously practices self-development and gratitude and happiness knows this for a fact, that by practicing those kinds of states of mind, by just like finding things in your day that you can be grateful for and, you know, count 10 of them every day, you're going to build neurons based around the action of being grateful, just like you would Wait, build.
2: Yeah, like this is. I've, I've never thought about it like that, but you're building the myelin in your brain firing the neurons in this in the synapses for gratitude and so you're going to increase your overall mental well-being through that practice because of myelination occurring like to strengthen the the circuit to be able to fire faster and better basically
1: exactly exactly and that's not just gratitude that's love acceptance joy um, expectations, you know, not being bothered when your expectations are met. And ultimately, ideally, not forming expectations in the first place.
2: This is fascinating.
1: I am so glad because I know I started off rambling.
2: <laughs> this, is, this is fascinating. I mean, it, this is even making me like sort of connect to like what many would consider like sort of the hocus pocus of religion. Oh, yeah. You know and and people would be like oh this is just yeah like hocus pocus of of religion Uh, you can hear that very often but there's scientific backing to the idea of myelinating those neural circuitry better
0: rituality uh, and the purpose behind rituality the other thing i'm thinking of is also it's 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 honestly the easiest way to think about it is you know when they tell you the more you smile the more you get to smile and it's true. Uh, the 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 more you, you inject and force yourself into specific behaviors, uh, the more you get used to them and the more natural they become to you.
1: Hmm. I think those behaviors... So this kind of gets into the question of intentionality versus behavior, mere behavior. And we are talking about subjective human consciousness here. So that gets sticky in a really good way. Um, Because I think Mm -hmm. what we consider and just just my theory, having... So I I went through this process. I went through a treatment that utilizes these principles and they did not ever design it to utilize these principles. It was a complete coincidence because they were tracking the structure and function of the nervous system and ultimately the emergent consequences they were correlating the data between the subjective conscious experience of what it is like to have anxiety you know have anger um what have you depression ptsd etc with the physiological sorts of remnants because when an individual undergoes trauma they build neural connections in response to that trauma to make sure Essentially, that they have a pre-programmed sub and unconscious response that can help defend them in the future. Um, uh, Yeah, I could come up with an example, but I think that does it right there. Um, So there's, you can see it in the brain. And you can sometimes even see when it developed. If it's in a part, if it's in a region of the brain that developed when you were, you know, between 15 and 25, there's a good chance that whatever trauma occurred happened in those year range. And then we can further kind of split hairs and see, okay, was it a physical trauma or was it an emotional trauma? What is the reaction that this part of the brain is responsible for? Is it a, related to some kind of physiological uh, protection aspect? Or if it's the part of the brain that triggers a, you know, a defensive emotional response, I think that's ultimately defending our psychology, our beliefs, because we don't like our, when our beliefs are challenged
0: nope oh nope (laughs) Um, I want to go back to um, a practical example in the case of anxiety because one thing I'm trying to understand these days especially in a troubled time like the one we're living at the moment is um the actual difference between anxiety and depression and if one is the Mm -hmm. subunit of the other. And then anxiety, (laughs) how many layers of anxiety can I have? So the way I understand the
1: difference between anxiety and depression is anxiety is an activation. Um, Anxiety excites the nervous system in a way to prepare it for a stimulus. So you you hear a you hear a a loud crashing through the trees you expect that there's a a bear running at you you get anxiety depression as i understand is more of a deactivation um you know the the same bear is crashing through the same trees and you're like you know what honestly today's the day let's do it (laughs) um (laughs) as far as as far as the treatment goes, and this here. is one of the really interesting things, is when you're treating a complex system as a complex system, you can utilize the same approach, no matter the pronunciation, the, uh, the particulars of the system. And this is part of what makes complex systems theory, and just the, the field in general one of my favorite to talk about because you can take an analysis for a business and apply it to a biological unit you know a cell or an organism and then you can take that same analysis and talk about astrophysics or um, sociology so I love it for that aspect but underlying Mm -hmm. psychology not underlying psychology underlying depression and anxiety are fears really at the end of the day Because those motor neurons, that that relationship in the brain, that trackable patterned phenomena that we can identify as, oh, there goes anxiety or there goes depression, um, those don't get fired if not for fears. And I I do want to say real quick that there are absolutely individuals for whom SSRIs are an excellent treatment. 100%. 100%. There's... Uh, serotonin what's, reuptake what's inhibitor, I believe. Uh, Azim, yeah. are you more educated on the pharmaceutical side?
2: I, I I almost went to medical school, but it's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Uh, is like the what it what it stands for, and it's essentially just like blocks. No, without getting into it, there that's one of the main forms of depression meds or depression and anxiety meds that people go on.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, like, Zoloft so it reduces Paxil, the level of serotonin. Uh, some of the like very very popular SSRIs, uh, and they, they it it's one of the ones that's most commonly prescribed for it. And there absolutely are people who need to take them, but uh, I, I'm on the boat where I think way too often we jump to the conclusion that our brain chemistry needs it, and it's become this sort of crutch also because mm-hmm. there there are so many people I see who have been taking them for five years ten years and just it looks like it's going to be a lifetime medication and they're still facing some serious issues but when holistic ideas are mentioned to them they sort of like laugh at it because they're like no but there's no scientific basis for that Mm
1: -hmm.
2: you know so that's why this is so interesting to me it's that there's more of a scientific basis for that
1: so the my kinds of Coming from a systems background, my feelings when I talk to neurologists or pharmacologists about particular neurotransmitters Mm -hmm. is that the neurotransmitters perform a function. They are a mechanistic apparatus within the system. And it doesn't matter if it's named serotonin, it doesn't matter if the chemical structure you know, in another universe, a parallel universe where human bodies formed differently, the ideal, probably the, the chemical structure of serotonin would have changed as well. None of that matters. But what would stay constant through those parallel universes is this kind of system structure of mechanisms interacting with a self-reflective system that can observe itself and its environment and incorporate its environment into its internal functionings. Because one of the tenets of systems is also that they're capable of pattern recognition and uh, prediction of where the environment is going to take a turn next. Um, back to the question. I completely forget the initial question there.
0: Uh, no, we, we started be, uh differentiating anxiety from depression, and that was quite clear. Um, But they're very counterintuitive in terms of feelings. Uh, Why would our body uh, Ah. hurt itself so much?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: If it wants to survive. That
1: is a very tricky question. So we, again, anxiety is a very motivating feeling. Um, motivating in the, you know, I have to take some kind of action about this. Um, and that's because our system, our neural network, again, I, I don't like mechanistic metaphors, but view it kind of like an old computer. Um, and the code is logical. You know, if you, if you give it a one, it's going to spit out a zero. But what the computer, what the nervous system is not good at doing is looking at the big picture and providing some perspective and context. And that's one of those things that we have to train it to do through self betterment, you know, self-development, what have you. The, and again, this is a consequence of being a complex system, which human beings are organisms. We are, um, in a constant metabolic flow, a constant energy exchange, the, the, the chemical potential energy in the breakfast you ate this morning has been rotating through the Earth through as long as, as we've had organic molecules from which to extract potential energy. Um, these, these parts of us have been around for thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, literally billions of years. We are a very temporary kind of time slice of of how these atoms and these molecules within us are existing right now. But in 100,000 years, this same energy, provided it hasn't been lost to entropy, is is going to be flowing. And so we get the sensation, the subjective experience that, that something is wrong right now, but it's because our system can't understand even in the terms of our own lifetime, that this doesn't matter immediately. I mean, we are privileged human beings, truly, to live in a world where our immediate needs are met. Mm -hmm. Or you and I are at the very least privileged to be able to talk through a computer like this. But when when you can't get water, when you can't get food and you can't get shelter, anxiety is a very appropriate response for the nervous system. But in an office building, I mean, I, I live in an apartment, uh, I have a car, for for my nervous system to create anxiety when all of my needs are met, I understand the the inclination, but ultimately, it's an inefficient use of my metabolic energy.
0: So to train our brains to be less prone to anxiety in our... Mm-hmm. Average daily life. Would it then be beneficial oh, wow. to impose mm. some suffering to to it, so that we could no. appreciate more?
1: I think we, I think we torture we ourselves when enough. we
0: have them. Or would that be
1: <laughs> Honestly, a torture? At mm. the end of the day, this is not victim blaming, zero percent, because people who suffer from anxiety and depression are are generally wonderful human beings with incredible amounts of compassion for themselves and other people not for themselves but for other people like them but that's the point that anxiety and compassion is not for themselves because their operating system the the wiring that's running their body which the subjective consciousness is just kind of tagging along for the ride because I believe subjective consciousness is an emergent property of a sufficiently connected neural network Um, they are torturing themselves and it does come from an evolutionary kind of place of i'm not doing well enough that fear again back to fear of either mm-hmm. i am i'm not doing enough i'm not being enough i am not enough is an incredible motivator
0: there's and that's zero, primal. If there's, zero. there's no rational reasoning that can help that That's why when you have a depressed friend, there's nothing you can say really to help him out because everything you're gonna say is just, for how rational it might feel feel to you, his reaction is not rational. So there's no way of understanding it or... um, um,
1: It's not rational. uh, Yeah, understanding the reasoning behind it. It is logical in the way that the computer kind of logic works. Where specific inputs yield specific outputs. Mm-hmm. And that's where the beliefs come in. That's where the psychology and the neuroscience interact. Because the input can be a stimulus, it can be light passing through the optic nerve, and that light just happens to depict, you know, a, a T Rex running at me. That's the input. The belief is that T Rexes are bad for my survival, they want to kill me. The reaction, is the sensory motor neuron response of getting the heck out of dodge
0: makes <laughs> sense? I think every, everyone else, has anyone, uh, people close to them, with similar problems, and it's just 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 uh, no way of reasoning different. behind the fact, you know, trying to explain that the X's don't exist because. Uh, to them, in that moment, uh, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's 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 something. So imagine primal that, that that's the treatment from in, from could deep not inside. only
1: affect uh, the reaction, the logical computer logic part of it, of the input to the output.
0: No, you have to focus on where it's coming from. Like if it's a T-Rex, you you have to show them documentaries that show that T-Rexes don't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Like that, you mm-hmm. you have to cure. And the, if that the causes cause, is so deeply it, ingrained
1: into are epigenetics. I mean, the, the the brain system structures that care about what my co-worker thinks about me evolved tens of thousands of years ago. I have those, my father has those, his father passed them down to him. There's. We're, we're really fighting an uphill battle when it comes to transcending some of these animal instincts because we have trillions of neurons all connected to serve the purpose of Making me care what you think about me, and not nearly enough connected, pointing to do I care what I think about myself?
0: That's mm-hmm. how we feel about and ourselves. And I, I you asked in you about this. Email.
1: Is this just a weird English phenomena, feeling about how we feel? Like, I feel sad about feeling sad or is that possible in italian too and does that translate into an illogical sentence
0: well the problem with feeling is that in italian translates in uh, something that has the same same meaning of listening oh wow (laughs) so that's actually really interesting is it i I wonder if it's to
1: some degree listening to your feelings
0: kind of well yeah i mean listening in terms of uh sounds but it's it's wow. it's also like feelings that. so it's uh how do, it's how do i feel and how wow. do i hear our i appreciate the same that
1: part. in german you don't say i you don't identify with the am you know i am sad you don't say that in german you would say uh, ich habe angst Mm-hmm. I I have mm-hmm. anxiety or I have sadness or I feel okay. sadness Ich fühle Angst
0: But you really have a lot of words in German you that do. describe feelings um,
1: I, so much in I, details I, right? Again, I think the interesting part there is the words that describe what it is to have a feeling the, the possession of a feeling rather than a a feeling consuming us, you know, I I am not sad, I feel sadness, I think that's another step on an individual's journey to really accepting their emotions as physiological signals. I know that when I feel anxiety, anger, sadness, (laughs) etc. And I'm not good about catching myself in the moment with it necessarily. But upon reflection, it's much clearer. Um, I yeah being able to recognize those as physiological sensations which we can respond to using our conscious intellect using all the the things that make us not animals the the love and the compassion part to to our highest possible degree i think that's where that's where an individual really starts to make long-term change in terms of who they are No, honestly, I'm I'm
2: just sort it's of again, in a place where like, I want to go read more about this and see how I can get this sound test done on my brain. Oh yeah, that's a great question.
1: We do, do not, that in remotely um, too. We do have a mobile unit, so if you were to fly us over to Italy, um, we could we could come visit you and stay, you know, crash on your couch or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, but no, right now, can I give a quick plug? Yeah. Cool. So our company is Pathwaves. Um, We are located in Miami on the edge of the Jackson Memorial Hospital campus. And we excel at treating anxiety, depression, PTSD, um, ADHD. Uh, We we help kids with autism. We help old folks with Alzheimer's. Um, And then what I'm most proud of is the work we do with high-functioning adults, people who don't necessarily think they need help but want to perform from a neurological standpoint optimally
0: okay okay I will, i'll put myself in that kind of situation for instance uh one thing i, I found um, intriguing in my life experiences which i think crafted the personality i have today and uh I think even psychological strength I have today in some instances is the having gone through so much change in my life. So people who travel a lot, who lived abroad a lot and had to socialize a lot and interact with many people uh, are almost accustomed to change at the point that sometimes the feeling Ah. of depression actually comes out of static situations. And you 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 end up having to challenge yourself constantly. Otherwise, you're basically you're, you're, you feel like uh-huh. you're, uh, you're stagnating in uh, in this um, swamp, uh, basically. Uh, that is life. Um, and uh, the interesting thing there that uh, I was thinking out loud when you when you were mentioning it, uh, the process before of uh, uh, sort of. Um, Uh, the neurofeedback process and trying to build these uh, uh, neuroplasticity and stimulate that uh, are there exercises that you have gone into suggesting to even healthy uh, adults or even children to sort of form a, a more less change adverse adult to form a less is there any 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 work like that you've done okay so with children is there anything you've done where you're trying to anticipate uh, problems that an adult could have just by stimulating already at an early stage with specific exercises I
1: I do want to give like Carl Jung and and, um, his, his due credit when it comes to talking about childhood experiences and their effect on adult psychology. Um, Because an adult with anger issues is a Mm -hmm. child with communication issues, is a child with insecurity issues. One thing that that this has taught me is that emotions are cocktails Mm -hmm. um, and they're layered, you know, like a a sex on the beach or something. Um, What we see and what we taste at the top is fermented Mm -hmm. by ingredients at the bottom. And when we work with children, in a way, it's almost easier because they are closer to that immediate feeling, to that immediate connection. With adults, you got to peel back decades of onion layers of... And this gets back to the question about language, you know, how we feel about how we feel feeling. Um, Adults have... Layers of feeling about how they feel that get stacked up over years and those feelings get translated into neurons. There's a sensory motor connection made there to reinforce the feeling because their system wants to be stable. It wants to change. Like that's how it grows for sure. But as far as entropy and thermodynamic equilibrium go, it wants to be stable so that it can stay far away from thermodynamic equilibrium. Children don't have all of those layers. And their version of far from thermodynamic equilibrium is to more rapidly embrace change. You know, kids can bounce around from one activity to the next, one classroom to the next, um, one idea to the next. And their ability to get more out of this program than an individual would expect it blows me away, truly. I mean, eight-year-olds can come in. And what in, in traditional neurofeedback, mm-hmm. they're using a Z-score or an S-Loretta method. And that's like a mega study done back in the 1980s that took like 50,000 Americans and figured out what the average you know, 10-year-old male brain looks like or average 30-year-old female brain looks like. Part of my objection there is I think average people are stressed out. Mm-hmm. Average mm-hmm. people do not have really efficient coping mechanisms or strategies. I I don't want to be average, and I don't wish that upon anybody else. Um, and it also leans, leans into the idea that you have to be sick, or something has to be wrong with you to benefit from neurofeedback. So I don't like that. One of the things they do with kids, and sometimes with adults, in traditional neurofeedback, is they'll play a movie, and they'll have sensors on your scalp while you're doing it. The more your brainwaves look like the version of brainwaves that they want you to be, the movie will play smoothly. Full color, full sound. Excuse me, I have hiccups. Um, no problems at all. As soon as your brain starts to get distracted, or you start not doing you know, what they're asking you to do, the image on the screen starts to gray. The color fades, the, the sound fades, it gets staticky. And that is their version of training your brain to be different than it currently is. It doesn't address belief systems. It doesn't address the evolutionary biology and the uphill fight against trillions of neurons that care about what other people think of you. Um, and that works well with kids. And to a certain degree, we still do that with kids because they're not always fully... You know, conscious, present adults. You can't, you can you can't talk to them about um, about deep-seated mm-hmm. sorts of fears mm-hmm. in the same abstract way. But they, nonetheless, mm-hmm. get the effects. They can interact with their nervous system using this sensory language in almost an intuitive way, kind of like how kids learn technology so fast. Um, and ultimately, if it helps them. If it starts to make them feel better, less weird, less different from from others. I think it helps to give them perspective that, you know, adults struggle with this stuff, too. And it's OK. And so I, I love working with kids. I think they're great.
0: Gotcha. Um, yeah, I think we're uh, we got enough stuff in um it would be very interesting in future to maybe have this conversation also with uh you know sp- speaking of holistic approach uh and seeing the body as a complex system and not focusing only on brain but maybe also thinking of you know even I was a minute I was a, I was always yes, burn mm-hmm. uh, as I was mentioning earlier uh the diet and the uh, phys- physiology of, of the body chemistry um, and how hormones affect us so much I think there's so much is so interconnected that I think this conversation will be way way more complicated but also interesting if expanded to other realms of the uh, say f- mm-hmm. physical world uh, in terms of analysis of the physical world and the body and the human body definitely you know because you can uh, in the same way you were mentioning biohacking there, there's 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 uh, maybe certain activities and sports that can help uh, incentivize the production of c- certain hormones or um uh maybe c- certain certain uh, uh f- a certain type of food in the same way uh, can help and all that can contribute to uh, to a moralistic uh, approach to mental but also physical health which yeah, as you mentioned before I, the would, uh, so slick I would invite anyway.
1: the opportunity to, uh, to talk to you guys again anytime. I, I so much appreciate you finding me on Clubhouse um, and then inviting me to come nerd out with you about, about human evolution, complex systems theory and how how thickly over- interconnected our, our world and our webs are yeah, this was awesome cool thanks guys alright everyone. thank you so much for Ciao. your time